This episode of The Reporter's Notebook contains graphic accounts of child abuse, sexual assault, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Damian Willis, and this is The Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News, a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the week's biggest stories. In this episode, we're joined by Sun News public safety reporter Justin Garcia, as well as former Sun News reporter Bethany Brunel Raja, to look at three of Doniana County's biggest crimes of the past several decades, all of which mark anniversaries in the first half of February. First, it's been one year since the death of New Mexico State Police Officer Darian Jarrett who was shot and killed by a motorist on February 4th, 2021, after conducting a traffic stop east of Deming while assisting Homeland Security investigations. Jarrett was 28 years old. Then, five-month-old Brianna Lopez, baby Brianna, died on July 19th, 2002, as a result of brutal sexual and physical abuse at the hands of her father, mother, and uncle. Brianna's death is considered one of the worst child abuse cases in Doniana County history. While the infant died in July, this Valentine's Day would have been her 20th birthday. In September 2003, Stephanie Lopez, Andy Walters, and Stephen Lopez were convicted in Brianna's death. Stephanie was convicted of negligent child abuse resulting in death and child abuse. Steven Lopez, Brianna's uncle, was convicted of intentional child abuse resulting in death, conspiracy to commit child abuse resulting in death, and first-degree criminal sexual penetration. He was sentenced to 57 years in prison. Walters, Brianna's father, was convicted of intentional child abuse resulting in death, conspiracy to commit child abuse resulting in death, first-degree criminal sexual penetration, and two counts of child abuse. He was sentenced to 63 years in prison. And finally, February 10th marked 32 years since the Las Cruces Bowling Alley Massacre, which occurred in 1990. Seven people were shot four of whom died that day as a result of their injuries. Stephen Teran, his six-year-old daughter Paula Holguin, and two-year-old daughter Valerie Teran were among those killed at Las Cruces Bowl on February 10th, 1990, when two gunmen entered the bowling alley before it opened on a Saturday morning, shot seven people, execution style, robbed the business's safe of about and set the office on fire. Four other people were shot that day, including Amy Hauser, 13, who died from her wounds, Melissa Repass, 12, who made the 911 call after the shooting. Thank you. 
Killing Ellie's cook, Idaho Gein, 30, who survived, and the business's manager, Stephanie Sinak, 34, who died years after the shooting as a result of her injuries. 32 years later, the homicides remain unsolved, and it's widely regarded as the largest unsolved mass shooting in the nation. Later, we'll be joined by Anthony Teran, Stephen's brother and Paula and Valerie's uncle, to discuss the indelible mark the shooting left on the Teran family that Saturday morning, 32 years ago. Bethany, Justin, thanks for making a little time to join us today to discuss your reporting. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Let's start with the most recent tragedy, which is the killing of Officer Darian Jarrett. Bethany, I imagine you probably remember that day all too well. Do you want to start by telling us how it unfolded? I believe I was on a court call that day. We were working um, from home still. It was still the pandemic um, and all of those protocols were still in and I was in my living room sitting on my couch and um, I believe I got like a text message or something uh, that there had been a police shooting or a police officer had been shot and uh, we didn't know yet if he'd been killed so I immediately called Lucas and he sent me out to I-10 and I think I was in the wrong part of I-10 because I didn't see like the big trucks or anything like that but that whole area that I was in traffic had been diverted it was it was traffic was going very slowly there were police cars everywhere and and so like you definitely knew that something yeah it was very clear something was happening yes and so then I was talking with a contact that I have who works in the criminal criminal justice community there in Las Cruces and my contact called me and uh, they were like Bethany uh NSP officer has been murdered and I was like oh my goodness that's terrible so I contacted Lucas and he sent me back home and we were kind of waiting I guess for more information I was calling NMSP texting the PIOs there and whatnot but they were so busy that they couldn't really get back to me and so I think I wrote a story. I watched there. There had been video circulating uh, on the internet of the incident that occurred on I ten after Officer Jarrett had been killed. Um, and so Lucas assigned me to watch the video and write a story about what happened in the video. And so that's what I did for the rest of that day. Now, uh, Justin, you've had occasion to revisit this story uh, through your coverage in the years since the shooting happened and after Bethany moved on to uh, Rhode Island. Yeah, that's right. I wrote a story last week about a wrongful death lawsuit involving uh, Darian Jarrett's widow and the New Mexico State Police. And tell us, tell us what you can about that lawsuit. Yeah, so Essentially, the Darian Jarrett's widow, through her lawyer, uh, Sam Bregman, who's a lawyer out of Albuquerque, alleged that Jarrett was sent into an incredibly dangerous situation, uh, a situation that he had no no information about just how dangerous it was when, when that information existed and, and was allegedly known to the Mexico State Police. 
much has come to light through our reporting, particularly regarding the so-called whisper stop, which is a term I had never heard, but we learned a little more about through that wrongful death lawsuit filed against New Mexico State Police by his widow. What can you tell us about that? Sure, yeah. So Homeland Security Investigations, which is a federal agency that operates and investigates in the borderland, was investigating a man named Omar Cueva. They believe that Cueva was trafficking methamphetamine and fentanyl across the borderland and they believed that he was uh, that he was carrying uh, carrying some guns with him, and that he had allegedly said, "quote that he wasn't going back to jail to an undercover officer." This was all allegedly information that Homeland Security Investigations knew, some of which had been given to members of New Mexico State Police. None of which made its way to Darian Jarrett. The lawsuit alleges so he didn't know who he was pulling over essentially he did not when his when his sergeant told him to pull over uh, the vehicle matching Cueva's uh, description he had no reason to believe it was anything more than just a typical traffic stop oh attempt tag 0527 Edward Paul it's gonna be a white Chevy pickup one aboard can't tell what state the temp tags out of Sir, my name is Darren Jarrett. I'm with New Mexico State Police. Reason for the stop is your window tint's a little too dark. Yeah. Do you mind if I open the door? Or if you want to roll down the window more. Hey, hey, real quick, real quick. You have the fire Yeah. Oh, no, I see it. Please. If I take it off you for my safety, he was, of course, as, as we've talked about, he was killed shortly after he pulled Cueva over, uh, and then Cueva was killed in, in a police shootout. But it was basically pull him over, detain him until we get there, until HSI gets there, and um, yeah, keep him keep him busy until until our until the medical teams and tactical teams that we have stationed nearby can. They were less than a minute away. Is that correct? That's what the video shows. Yeah, that's what the the dash cam of of Jared's vehicle, which has been released to the public through public records requests. That's what that video shows that it really wasn't long before those units were were trying to bring Cueva to a stop again after he had killed Jared. Well, you know, It's just another sad anniversary that we're marking early in February. It seems like there's so much. Now, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit. Talk about baby Brianna. She would have turned 20 this Valentine's Day if not for her tragic death. Her death in 2002 really shook our community and ultimately led to stricter penalties in child abuse cases across the state. Again, I'm pretty sure you've each had occasions to revisit this case during your time on the public safety beat for the newspaper. Yes, I went to her gravesite on her 18th birthday and it struck me as an oddly peaceful place. 
um, people still remember this case. Um, when I went there, there were her grave was beautiful. Her gravesite was beautifully decorated. People had left all kinds of stuffed animals, some candy, um, toys, uh, just all kinds of things. And so this little girl, you know, she lived to be five and a half months old, and during that time was brutally assaulted and beaten and uh, just 15 bite marks all over her body, human bite marks. Like that poor child, like I can't even imagine anybody wanting to do that kind of thing to a little infant baby. Like she hadn't even reached toddlerhood. Like she was an infant. Like you think of a little one month old and how frail a one month old baby is and then they grow and they're two months old and they're still they don't have all their strength yet they don't have all their body muscles yet built up and they just are so dependent on everybody and for everything and these people just just tortured this infant this this sweet little innocent baby and, and but her life was so impactful in changing these laws and that it's inspiring and people remember that her if you were to go to her gravesite today there would be new toys new benches new things that people have left at her gravesite um from two years ago and actually on the sun news website there is a, a photo gallery uh that i publish of of her gravesite that you can take a look at and all this happened to her before she cut her first tooth you know it's it's just tragic justin uh what's new well as bethany mentioned i think one of the really striking things about this story is how the impact that baby brianna's life had on new mexico law but in in recent years and, and especially in 2021 her her story has really garnered a lot of attention on tiktok which if you don't know what it is, you're very lucky. TikTok is a video sharing app in which people create short, quick videos uh, about a number of topics, um, including uh, true crime. And that's sort of how Brianna Lopez's death is, is sort of viewed in, in these lenses. And these videos are, you know, very kind of direct to camera videos of, of, People usually in their in their 20s, essentially going over the details of the case, talking directly into the camera with images of sometimes very graphic images of uh, baby Brianna's body, uh, sometimes images of, of mug shots of the, of the people who were convicted in the case uh, and sometimes photos of other babies who are not baby Brianna. But uh, that seems to not be known or cared about by the uh, the person producing the TikTok. Some of these videos have, I think the most popular one has somewhere north of 160,000 views. My goodness. Uh, which is a lot. <laughs> Others range between, you know, the 50,000 mark and a couple thousand or a couple hundred. <laughs> kind of coincidentally, there is also, there's another baby Brianna on TikTok who is likely contributing to the kind of growth of, of this of this story. Although that baby Brianna is a much happier story of uh, a girl in, I believe it's uh, Baja, California, who uh, tries on different outfits with her mother and posts them 
and uh, much to the delight of thousands of, of, of viewers. The sensationalism of the Brianna Lopez story combined with the fact of, of this other person who shares her name uh, has really introduced Brianna Lopez's story to a whole new audience. Her mother, Stephanie Lopez, was released from prison in 2016. She was uh, imprisoned in, in grants. Nearly six years later, hardly a week goes by that that story doesn't bubble back up into our most read stories. Um, people have really developed a connection to the the child, to, to baby Brianna. And last check, and, and I'm not quite sure if this has changed since the story I dug up from 2016, baby Brianna's uncle, Stephen Lopez, um, who is Stephanie's brother, was set to be released from prison in 2023. So next year. And her father, Andy Walters, um, was scheduled for a 2026 release date. Goodness. Yeah, as far as I know on my end, that's, that's, that remains correct. I think I find it odd that this is the first time I'm hearing about the TikTok sensation of this case. And I find it, you know, as a journalist, I, I just find it, and especially reporting uh, for eight years on the crime beat, um, I, I just, I find it difficult when people who don't understand journalism ethics and they don't have the real tools to under their belt, the real tools under their belts to develop a story and to do it correctly and to do it ethically. I have a problem when when they do it for platforms such as TikTok. And they don't they um, don't understand the nuances of the, the case either or the laws or the laws. And it, it just it, it brings up so much so many misconceptions of, of the legal system, misconceptions of the crime. And it's a disservice to the victims of these crimes, really. Like it's not honoring them. It's not doing them any good, really. I mean, that's just my opinion but it's frustrating. Now I want to turn our attention to the 32nd anniversary of the Las Cruces bowling alley massacre and bring Anthony Tehran into the conversation. Um, Anthony, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you for reaching out to me. Absolutely. Um, we've kind of been in touch for a little over a decade now, I think probably uh, about the last 10 or 12 years. And you know, it's always good to connect with you, but of course it also brings up that terrible situation that happened back in 1990. So I wanted to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. This horrible, horrific crime really left an impression on Las Cruces. It's one of those moments, if you were around, you remember exactly where you were and what you were doing, but the impact that it it's had on your family, of course, is so much greater. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, Anthony? Yes. Um, you know, this, it's been 32 years, as you said. Um, it's tough, you know, to continue hoping and, and continue to, to keep the fires burning and wanting to get the justice. You know, the impact at the very beginning, um, I think, you know, we were all in, of course, huge amount of shock. I think my family and I kind of turned into recluse 
and just wanted to hide out and not really talk or, you know, we didn't even, it just seemed like time stood still. We just couldn't, you know, move forward with stuff. You know, my parents kind of sat down, man, they were really good about, you know, disciplining us and, you know, doing things and activities. And after all this happened, it just kind of, just kind of took the life out of them. As you might imagine, I mean, you know, you're, you're, talking to your brother one morning and the next day you're having to go purchase three caskets, you know, for your family and, and your entire branch of your family tree's gone. There's no other niece or other cousin that can take over his branch. It's done in that part of the family. So, you know, at first there was a lot of poor us, oh no, what are we going to do? And then it turned into, you know what, we got to deal with it, why not us? And then, you know, a few years later, the impact was, you know what, why the hell am, am I not doing anything? And it just started gaining more, you know, I, I got that fire in me to say, hey, you know, I think we've shut it down long enough. Um, this is BS because there's three kids that were shot dead. A fourth one that I don't know how she survived, but I mean, you're talking about an attack on kids. And here we are 32 years later, the worst unsolved case in the U.S. for, for murdered children. Um, it's just perplexing. You know, you get angry. I still do have issues with having to bring up the story and talk about it and the gruesomeness about it. But it just seems, you know, you got to bring that up or people will begin to forget. And here's Chuck Franco, a first responder on the scene that day. When I first received the phone call, I was uh, at the house and it was my sergeant and he said, look, you need to get down here quick. We had a major crime uh, this morning. Uh, several people are dead and we need you to assist at the crime scene. And he wouldn't go into more detail than that. He said, just get here. We need you here now. And it, it took you a long time to move beyond that shock and acceptance into a, a place where you felt comfortable speaking publicly about it. Absolutely. I honestly kind of hated the world for a while. I thought, you know, why did we have this bad luck? But, you know, my brother, I could feel him and, and I understand that he he was the, the only male adult there. Um, you know, it was... You know, I feel bad for him, man, because as a father of two girls of my own, you know, the second he walked into that bowling alley and saw the situation, I'm sure his heart sank and said, how did I bring my two young girls into this situation? Not by a fault of his own, but still, you're a father, you're a protector. How did we get to this point? And then the thinking I have is, is my, my brother's telling me, you know what, I was the only male adult there the biggest threat to them. I can, I, I can believe I, my brother would actually reason like this to say, I understand they, why they took me out, but bro, my girls did not deserve this. Do whatever the heck you can find it out. Keep this story alive. They deserve justice. When I think of them, I mean, that's, that's what really has been driving me. You know, I'm a father now and I'm able to take my kids out for ice cream. I'm able to, by um, senior pictures and I'm able to go to their ball games and stuff. You know, my, my brother and, and, and his kids were denied all of that. So tell us a bit of guilt, guilt, survivor guilt, but yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, in a, it's an impact. Tell us a little bit about Stephen, Paula and Valerie. 
My brother, he was a joker, man. He was pretty. He was pretty laid back. He was very quiet. He didn't. He wasn't really outspoken. But if you knew him or you were in his circle, and he was a he was a prankster, a jokester. He loved to joke around with you, laugh with you. Um, growing up with the girls, Paula. Um, she's just such a, a good sweetheart. She had such a good heart on her. Her she had a really deep voice, so she like talked and laughed really deep, and it was just such a pleasure to hear. <laughs> Stephen's youngest was um, she was a little fireball man. She if you liked her or if she liked you, you knew it, and if, if she didn't like you, you really knew it. But um, it's it, it, she was a yeah. I mean, again, I try to think of all the things I can think about her, and man, she was two years old. Right. It's it's hard to, you know, say, oh, yeah, we did all these great things. Man, it's a two-year-old. So, I mean, they were a very loving family. My brother just graduated. He was getting ready to move on, get his family, you know, move up with his family, find a new home, a new job. And, you know, this, unfortunately, two days into his two-week notice, he, he was killed. Justin, you recently wrote about the reward being increased in the still unsolved case. What can you tell us about that? Yeah. So a few years ago, the local Crime Stoppers branch announced that they would have a $25,000 reward. And this year, Charlie Min, who's a, a local filmmaker and who's made a, a movie about the, the incident we're talking about, he threw in $7,000 of his own money to bring the reward total to $32,000 on the 32nd anniversary. Anthony, um... You know, it's we keep going back to this. It's been 32 years. Do you have confidence that the case will one day be solved? I know as a family, I know you guys have held on to hope, but what sort of confidence do you guys have? 32 years, man. I mean, how, how much hope does anybody have after 32 years? I, I can say it's probably not a lot. About, a you know, two or three years ago, there was a few cold cases that were that were above the 25 year mark, even above the 30 mark that, that were, that ended up being solved. And I got another like little, you know, another drive to start pushing this again. Like, you know, Hey, if it can happen to them, it can happen to us. But you know, 32 years is a long time, man. And that's a, it's hard to keep driving. Um, I know there's a lot of people in the community that, you know, are tired of hearing about it that don't even want to, you know, have the movie shown or anything like that. And I, I don't know, I don't understand that part of it. I mean, you're talking about justice for kids here, man. This is, this has been tough, you know, to deal with this 32 years later. I still have the same emotions, man. I still talk about them and I still choke up and cry. It, it, it doesn't go away. I, I know nothing will ever bring them back, but man, just to have that tag of justice on it, I don't care. You know, show me their gravestone and say, this is them. This is the guy that did it just some kind of tag to, to figure out why this happened and hopefully catch those. I, I feel there's more people involved than just the two. So, you know, I think this would go further if we were able to pin somebody. The the two suspects in the composite sketches that police have first released and then updated a few years ago to kind of age them and show what they might look like today, right? Correct. Here's Amador Martinez, the lead investigator on the case for many years. I work, uh, I work uh, crimes against persons, so the violent crimes, um, the sexual assaults, the homicides. Um, and in this case, just like in really any case where somebody loses their life, I think that's extremely tragic. Um, anytime somebody loses their life outside of natural causes, um, that's, that's a sticking point with me. Um, 
And in this case, you know, four people immediately lost their lives. Five, um, once, um, once Stephanie uh, passed away because of complications. Um, so I think that's that's just tragic. It's just tragic. Somebody had to lose their life over that, especially if it was just over money or drugs or whatever the theories are out there. Um, I mean, all that's replaceable, but lives aren't. Bethany, what would you like to add? I, you know, I. As a crime reporter, I've been a crime reporter for pretty much eight years. And now in this case has always just um, been so uh, it, it weighs heavily on my heart just because, you know, there were such young victims in the case. And um, I, I remember one year I wrote a story about it from the perspective of Anthony's family. Anthony was not married uh, during the time of the homicides. And so he told me that on one of their first dates, he and his wife spent it consoling Audrey, who was Stephen Turan's wife and the mother of, of Paula and Valerie. And then I, I wrote about how his children, who weren't even born yet, grew up in a household where such a heinous crime had been committed and uh, against members of the household and how it affected their childhood. And so I think like if we could hear a little bit about how this has affected generations in this family, I think that would be a good thing to discuss also. Absolutely. So Anthony, Anthony. How, how has it affected your wife, your relationship with your wife and your chil children's lives. Yeah, you know, um, Veronica came into my life right at the right time. Uh, I was pretty much in that I don't care about anybody mode, but um, somehow, some way, she found a way to soften me up. And on our first day, you're absolutely right. Um, we were about to take off and Audrey comes and calls and says, you know, hey, I'm feeling horrible. I need to be with somebody. And she ended up meeting Veronica and sure enough, Veronica and I have been together since since 1990, <laughs> since a few months after this whole thing happened. Um, and and, and in that, that story Bethany wrote, she uh, in speaking with your daughters, Anthony, she kind of discussed with them the, the connection that they feel with their uncle, Stephen, and, and their cousins that they never met. Yeah, that, uh, and you know, it's hard. It's, it's like you, you expect everybody to know them as well as I did, you know, in the family. And, you know, they never had that opportunity. But I go and visit them every time I go down to New Mexico. I, I My kids come with me. They all know exactly how to get to the, the cemetery and where they're at. And we go and we look at all their pictures and we talk about, I mean, we even had, a, um, as Bethany had written, they, my one of my daughters had even, got her hands on one of my brother Steven's vinyl records. <laughs> I was and, waiting and uh, to see how long it would take for Van Halen to come up. <laughs> yeah. We're, we are, we're really big rockers, man. And she had a, uh, a record player. Uh, she's just very nostalgic. And man, before I knew it, I, ha I heard that album playing for the first time since probably way back in the eighties or so. But man, it was, it was, it's good to see the connection. I'm really sad that there wasn't time for them to bond and know each other, but, you know, so is life. 
Anthony, it seems like everyone has a theory about the case. Um, the the movie uh, Nightmare in Las Cruces has come up um, earlier in the conversation. I know police have explored all sorts of different avenues in the 32 years since to no avail. Do you tend to gravitate to any of them in particular? You know, it. That's always funny, man, because depending on my mood really is I, I, I'm thinking, oh, it has to be this way. And then like, no, 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 maybe it's this way. But I am leaning towards uh, more so that these guys weren't really from the town that they were probably sent here to send a message to somebody. I mean, there's a couple reasons. I mean, first of all, I would not believe any criminal in Las Cruces uh, would be so evil as to shoot a six-year-old and a two-year-old point blank in the forehead while they're looking at him. It just doesn't happen. Nobody, how can you do that? And then again, if you have a, a world-renowned uh, forensic sketch artist, Lois Gibson, come into town, makes these composites that, oh man, yeah, the victims all said that looks just like them. And nobody's oh, ever oh. seen these guys. How in the world, if these people are from Las Cruces, can nobody look at that composite and say, yeah, man, I remember my cousin hangs out with a guy like that, or that guy looks like a guy I've seen with my uncle, or they were, I mean, as good as they were and as, as positive as the victims were, I just don't see it. And that, to me, I think leads it more as, as a stranger or as two people that were sent here. How is, how is your family doing now, Anthony? We are all doing good. Um, honestly, it's uh, we live by faith, man. So we we've uh, we've kind of taken all of this in stride. We do our best. We go to work. We pay our bills. We don't break laws. And you know, we've been just you know we live under the radar happily and and contently. Um, yeah, we do have a, a lot of times we talk about the the girls and them. Oh yeah, imagine. Paula would have probably been married a few years now and probably had a couple kids and yeah, they'd probably be living, you know, somewhere in New Mexico and, you know, just start planning out what their life would have been like and all these what ifs. But, you know, it's, you know, we don't forget about it. I don't care if 32 years has gone by, you know, in the next 32 years, I'm still going to be as heartbroken as I am today. Yeah. Those, um, but, those little girls would be 34 and 38. Yeah, can you imagine that? And they'll have their own their own careers, their own families, their own stories. Um, like I said, man, when you lose a branch of your tree, it's it's it, you just killed generations down the line. It's 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 sad. Justin Bethany, uh, before we let Anthony go, is there is there anything that that is weighing on your minds that you would like to talk to him about? Yes, um, you know, we haven't men- mentioned Audrey that much i think it's important to point out that that day she lost everything she lost her husband her two little girls and her house she never went back to the house that she shared with her husband and you know how's how's she doing now um how's audrey you know audrey is um she's the strongest woman on this planet you're you're exactly right and not only you know did she lose her family, but if you understand the story and how she found out about the shootings and how she tried to call the bowling alley and how the radio was saying things that something's going on on Loman and how she asked her friend to give her a ride. I mean, just, and then how she, when she gets there, somebody's telling her that two of her family members are dead, but there's another one on the way to the hospital and just 
could not imagine how does a human being go through this and lose their entire family one day you're you're in the morning you're making them breakfast getting them ready to go out and then a few hours later you're being told they're dead i i do not see how she could have rebounded from it it took an immense amount of love and support and she's doing very well now she's uh, living in silver city working in the hospital and um, she likes to stay to herself, doesn't get out and do a lot of stuff, uh, doesn't like to be seen too much, but but she is living. Justin? Yeah, I was just curious because, you know, I I, uh, I I wasn't born when, when the incident happened, and I, I know about it through reading, reading stories about it and, and you know, uh, friends of mine who had some connection to the to the bowling alley uh, or whose parents had connections to it i was just curious anthony i mean so much of this story is in the public right either through newspaper articles or through uh, like we, we had mentioned the movie does that process does that reality make it easier to deal with with these things among your family does it make it harder i mean what is kind of the impact of the fact that so much of the story is beyond your guys's control yeah you know it's doing this is not about trying to make us feel better or, or, or worse i think we're we're our number one concern is justice right now um whether that brings you know the media to our house or we have to go find it you know so be it but you know we <laughs> we definitely didn't ask for this i'm not I'm not out there just to hear myself speak. I'm out there talking for my brother and, and his kids and all the victims, you know what? And not just this case, all the cases, man. I can't imagine how many people go through with unsolved murders and stuff like that, that this happens to. It's amazing. I mean, in 1990, you had 23,400 people murdered. And to this day, there's still around 7,500 unsolved murders from 1990 and I I'm a drop in the in the bucket man there's a 7,499 other families out there that have been dealing with their torment and their loss so it's a it's it's more of an eye-opener to say hey this is happening to many people not just us but yes man this is a very important case it wasn't just my brother it was kids and kids deserve justice. They were the pure innocence. And one of the things you kind of alluded to earlier, every time a cold case that is 20 or 30 years old is solved, that kind of, you've got a personal connection when you hear that, or a personal reaction when you hear that story. Because like you said, it kind of provides a glimmer of hope absolutely provides hope um i just like you, you said there's money being added to the to the reward and all that's good you know money brings people out of the woodworks but come on man if you can if you've had information all this time and you're waiting for an extra few bucks to come forward man I don't, you're, you don't even deserve to be called a human um I, I just don't i don't understand it at this point in time i think um, trying to entice somebody to come forward is, is, is they either going to come or they're not, uh, and I don't think money's going to do it. Man, it's just it's for it's it's justice. Anthony, uh, is there anything else you want to add before we let you go? I just want to thank everybody for the continued support. I mean, just looking at you guys here, I'm, I appreciate 
man, Damien, Justin, Beth, you've all in some way or another, we've kind of um, talked about this case and have gone around. There's many good people out there that are with us the best. And I mean, we can't thank them enough. Um, again, we're just grateful for all the people in the community of both the Las Cruces and El Paso area. And uh, we can't thank them enough. And hope they continue to spread the word and again not on just on this case but you know on all all unsolved crimes well our our thoughts are certainly with your family um as we come up on another anniversary so anthony thanks for taking the time to join us on the reporter's notebook thank you very much for having me and you all have a great day you too We hope you'll continue following all of these important stories and the rest of Justin's reporting on public safety. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me. Please subscribe to the Las Cruces Sun News to read all our local reporting. Brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in Las Cruces. Until next time... I'm Damian Willis. Thanks for listening.